you've just found an asteroid that threatens Earth. Who are you going to call? This week on Planetary Radio. Welcome to the travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society, and I'll tell you who to call. It's the Minor Planet Center, the global nerve center for cataloging space rocks and dirty snowballs, including the ones that cross the path of our home planet. We'll talk with its director, Tim Sparr. You'll also hear from Bruce Betts, and Bill Nye has an explosive commentary, literally, Emily Lakdawalla is still on vacation, so we welcome back Planetary Society contributing editor Jason Davis. Jason, uh, a happy post-4th of July to you. I know that you were uh, sort of saluting the holiday with your piece that came out on July 3rd uh, called A Patriotic Return to Space, which is uh, mostly the very good news uh, that we all enjoyed when Discovery uh, rocketed back up there. But it also brought me back to that day, hard to believe it was 27 years ago, one of the saddest of my life when uh, the Challenger blew up moments after lifting off. I was looking up the photos of those wonderful people who died in that accident. The grief of that day all came back to me. It was a, it's a very sad thing. Yeah, yeah. I really think the Challenger was a unique event and that it, it really stung the country like no other space disaster had at that time. And, and there hasn't done since uh, the Columbia accident years later. Um, at the time, you know, it was the single largest loss of life in a spaceflight accident and uh, the first time America had lost any astronauts during an actual mission and uh, happened in front of the entire world on live TV, all the school children that were watching uh, to see Krista McAuliffe. And uh, it was really uh, uh, caused some soul searching, I think, uh, among the American mm. people. So take us to about two and three quarters years later, and we're back at Kennedy Space Center. Yes, yeah, so um, NASA responds to this uh, by redesigning the solid rocket boosters that caused Challenger's accident. They overhaul the managerial system, and we finally have Discovery back on the launch pad. Uh, extra safety measures in place, the crew are wearing pressure suits, and uh, we finally get the shuttle off the ground for the first time since uh, since the Challenger disaster. And it was a huge moment for America. Hugh Harris, the public affairs officer at the time, he says Americans returned to space as Discovery clears the tower. The media coverage around the time was similar. Uh, there were American flags everywhere. And it was just a real sense of patriotism and pride to see uh, Americans get back into space. You note that in the very last line of your piece. What did you write? I said, America loves a good comeback story. And I think that uh, that is exactly what happened here. You know, the country grieved uh, after Challenger was lost. But then there was uh, that was replaced immediately with a sense to um, to move on. And, um, you know, Americans kind of love that come from behind feeling. And uh, that's what happened here. It's a July 3rd piece, a blog entry by Jason Davis, contributing editor to the Planetary Society website at planetary.org, filling in this week once again for Emily Lakdawalla, who's away on vacation. Jason, thanks so much. Uh, great job with these pieces. Thanks for filling in. Yeah, it was my pleasure, Matt. Thank you. Bill Nye is next, but first, here's something else Jason reported on last week. It's July 2nd. And we're in Kazakhstan, where a Russian Proton-M rocket loaded with three expensive satellites is about to experience a launch catastrophe. Bill just goes to show, space is hard. I'll say. I mean, how many of those rockets have they launched? Dozens and dozens. They send them to the International Space Station, the cargo, everything. 
And even now, they had an enormous problem. It might also show you, Dr. Kaplan, <laughs> that if you stop supporting, if you're a government and you stop supporting your space program, you, you try to, let's say, cut corners, stuff goes wrong and it's catastrophic. The stakes are really high. When you light the fuse on one of those things, spiritually, you're, you're committed. If any one thing isn't working, you're just, you're wasting all those resources. And of course, it's very dangerous. And perhaps in that vein, although much happier news, was this other recent story that we saw about lots of commercial spacecraft, satellites, adopting a technology that was really pioneered because we wanted to go places like asteroids and Mars and things like that. Solar electric propulsion. Yeah. Yes. So you take energy from the sun onto solar panels, you charge up an electric grid, and then you shoot xenon plasma, the, the gas atoms that have had their electrons completely dissociated, and they go flying out the back so fast that they give the spacecraft the nudge it needs. And so, yeah, this would not exist at all without investment in deep space exploration, trying to rendezvous with asteroids especially. And so who knows where this is going to lead, as you point out. When you start using ideas that were developed to go very far and you start using them up close, it shows you, as you point out, that the technology is mature. And it's lowering the cost of space exploration so that we can include more the human population in the great adventure that is space. I know I'm, I'm, I'm speaking in uh, platitudes, aphorisms, in terms of phrase, but I'm not kidding. Space exploration brings out the best in us. And so this Russian rocket crash shows you how important it is to continue investing. And the solar electric propulsion, uh, it's not a resurgence, a surgence, <laughs> uh, uh, shows you that advancements, you, you never know where it's going to lead. Yeah, When absolutely. you invest in it, you, know, you don't know what, you, what benefits will accrue, but they, they do. They do. I, I think we may be the first to to pose that juxtaposition. And I, by the way, I want to thank you for the advancement, the promotion to a Ph.D. Term of respect. Let's work together, Matt, to dare I say it. Change the worlds. And he is the CEO of the Planetary Society. Thank you, Bill. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Matt. We're going to move on now to talking to someone who's been advising, helping out the Planetary Society to uh, pick our Shoemaker Neo Grant winners uh, protecting this planet. That's coming up in just a moment when we talk to Tim Spar. Timothy Spar knows what it takes to discover objects in our solar system, which explains his high respect for the other astronomers who contact him on a regular basis. Actually, you may be shocked by just how many observers he and his colleagues at the MPC hear from. MPC, that's the Minor Planet Center at the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory. Tim, it's a pleasure and uh, about time we got you on Planetary Radio. Thank you for joining us by Skype. Thanks very much for having me. This is a real honor to do this. And uh, a little shout out to all of the uh, amateur astronomy community that might be listening big fans of you guys. Oh, listen, I hope that uh, a lot of them tune in and uh, get to talk to you directly this way, although they are in touch with you on a regular basis. We're going to talk more about that and the role of amateur astronomers. But first, tell us a little bit about the Minor Planet Center. I was very interested to see, for one thing, that your operating budget comes from this NASA grant, but, but the MPC really serves the entire world, doesn't it? Yes, that's correct. The MPC 
is the world's data collection and distribution center for all minor planet and comet observations. And the way I phrase this to people is, hey, if you discover an asteroid, you need to talk to us. Hmm. So the Minor Planet Center has been in that role at least since the 1970s in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And there's history all the way back into the 1930s and 40s at the University of Cincinnati. So it's a long-running international operation. How many calls, they're not calls, I suppose, how many contacts do you get on a typical day from both professional and amateur astronomers? Well, it's interesting you ask that question because we've been keeping track of that now so that we can run reports on a daily basis. And we get observations from literally dozens of people every day in many different countries. Just by way of summary, the first monthly summary that we generated here in the last month, we received over half a million observations oh my from around the world. Yes. Now, I knew it would be a big number, but I wasn't expecting that many. That's got to say something about the, the vitality of these efforts to find and, and track these little objects. Uh, look, having been in the field for over 20 years now, it is absolutely staggering to me how much it's changed, how fast it's changed, and how much worldwide interest there is in the problem. It's really phenomenal. Why do you think you've seen this tremendous growth? Well, the, the growth in the observation submission and the discovery processes, there, there are a lot of angles on that. The principal reason is interest. People are interested in this problem. When there's interest, you have smart people, be them professionals or amateurs, that decide they want to work on it. And you have money flowing from governments to people that study the objects and discover them. For example, NASA's Near-Earth Object Observations Program, which does fund the Minor Planet Center, as well as a lot of the surveys in the United States, the budget for that is much higher than it was. Uh, in fact, in 1992, there was no budget. There was no Near-Earth Object Observations Program. They mm. were beginning the program, and it was formally funded in 1998. Boy, that's certainly uh, lots of evidence that this is a very successful program in that case. I would guess that events like uh, what happened over Chelyabinsk, Russia, last February have not hurt business. Oh, no. And first of all, I, I, I want to make clear that while that was an exciting event, it was also very frightening. And I'm, I'm sorry for people that were injured in that. Sure. Um, it's a little you know, tough sometimes when you see that because we'd love to be able to do something about that. Mm -hmm. But finding every single small object will take much, much more money than we're currently talking about. And this was an, a, a relatively small object that did that amount of damage. It was a, certainly a nice wake-up call for a lot of people who hadn't quite gotten it yet. How many objects are currently in the database? All right. So in the, the Minor Planet Center database, we distinguish between near-Earth objects, which are objects capable of making close approaches to the Earth. Close for us is sort of 25 or 30 million miles to the Earth. And objects that don't come that close. The entire Minor Planet Center catalog is about 800,000 asteroids and comets. Mm-hmm. And of those, we had a milestone. We've got the 10,000th near-Earth object was just discovered recently. From what I've read, there are a lot more of those near-Earth objects out there waiting for us uh, to discover them? Yes, most definitely. At the level of one kilometer in diameter, there's only a few dozen objects left to discover in the near-Earth asteroid population. But as we go smaller, there's tens of thousands to discover and even hundreds of thousands at the sort of 50-meter size range. So we have a lot of work to do. 
How important are the contributions by by amateurs uh, to uh, this? Not just discovery, but the tracking of uh, of these objects. Uh, do they do they play an important role? Yes, I want to make clear that the amateurs play an important role in this. Although I also want to be honest in that that role for discovery and follow up for the orbits is diminishing. Now, it's not because there's something wrong with the amateurs. It's because the professional observatories are receiving larger bunches or bits of funding than they have in the past. And so you have very large telescopes. The Catalina Sky Survey has a 1.5-meter telescope. PanSTARRS has a 1.8-meter telescope. And with large professional-level funding and grants and instrumentation, it's very hard then for the amateurs to contribute in the discovery process. Where they do contribute is in orbit refinement, and in particular now, the physical observation area, light curves especially. So this is where you study the object, how its brightness varies, and then you can tell how fast it's rotating. Uh, Sometimes you can get some physical property information from that. Amateurs are doing a fantastic job in that area right now, and they will likely do more. More from Tim Spar, director of the Minor Planet Center, is just a minute away. This is Planetary Radio. Hey, hey, Bill Nye here, CEO of the Planetary Society, speaking to you from Planet Fest 2012, the celebration of the Mars Science Laboratory rover Curiosity landing on the surface of Mars. This is taking us our next steps in following the water and the search for life to understand those two deep questions. Where did we come from and are we alone? This is the most exciting thing that people do, and together we can advocate for planetary science and, dare I say it, change the worlds. Hi, this is Emily Lakdawalla of the Planetary Society. We've spent the last year creating an informative, exciting, and beautiful new website. Your Place in Space is now open for business. You'll find a whole new look with lots of images, great stories, my popular blog, and new blogs from my colleagues and expert guests. And as the world becomes more social, we are too, giving you the opportunity to join in through Facebook, Google+, Twitter, and much more. It's all at planetary.org. I hope you'll check it out. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. Millions of asteroids and comets, most of them waiting to be found. We're lucky to have astronomer Tim Spar and his colleagues at the Minor Planet Center to keep track of them all and to keep everyone informed of their whereabouts. Tim directs the MPC from the Cambridge offices of the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory. The center's work is under the auspices of the International Astronomical Union and is funded by NASA. How much of a role has technology played in uh, particularly amateurs' uh, capabilities in this area? I mean, I'm thinking in particular of cameras, CCD cameras. The technological development is really amazing. For some listeners out there that might be my age or older, when I started discovering asteroids in the mid-1990s, I was still using film to do it, even Mm -hmm. in a professional capacity. And so now we've switched over to where the CCDs or charge coupled devices are affordable for amateurs, and they have really changed the game. Going from uh, you know trying to measure things on film, which required you know a measuring engine, to off-the-shelf packages that allow you to reduce uh, digital data in real time, there's really no comparison. The, the technological advances have put the ability to do this work in the hands of amateur astronomers. 
Now, you won't be surprised, of course, to know that I also want to talk to you a little bit about the Shoemaker NEO, or Near-Earth Object Program, grant program, operated by the Planetary Society, which uh, we were all uh, thrilled, of course, when you uh, agreed to be the new coordinator of that program. What, what does that job actually entail? We received the proposals from you, from the uh, Planetary Society, to, you know, every couple of years there's an announcement, people propose to do work in the field of near-Earth objects, be it in the discovery or follow-up or physical characterization area. We take the proposals and see which ones sort of rise to the top of the pile, which ones we think will provide the most bang for the buck, and we push forward our recommendations. In this round of the uh, awards that were just handed out a few months ago, actually, there's this really interesting group. They are from uh, various places around the world, although the majority are from the U.S. I'm looking at people in particular like Robert Holmes, who's been on this show a couple of times, from the Astronomical Research Institute in Illinois. He was a four-time winner. Always amazes me when I talk to these guys. Their level of dedication, they are out there every clear night, and they don't get a cent for doing this work. Well, in, in the case of, of Bob Holmes, I have known him since about 05 or 06. I can't remember exactly. And he started off as just an amateur. The next amateur astronomer contacted me saying, hey, how can I help out? I helped him. Pretty soon he was doing a good job. He's actually funded in part by NASA now for this work from the same pot of money that funds the Minor Planet Center. You know, I'd forgotten that. Uh, I'd completely forgotten, and also that he has a lot of educational activities underway. Oh, yes. That group uh, links up with schools from all over the world. Basically, what they're doing is helping high school kids understand the problem and do a little bit of surveying for asteroids in the existing data sets. And then uh, Bob also taps into amateurs that are uh, skilled at doing the data reduction from all over the world. And so it is really really an amazing project. And I like to point out to people that this field changes so fast, even for me, that it's tough to keep up. Here is someone that I did not know six or seven years ago who is now the world's leader in terms of the orbit improvement of near-Earth asteroids. Mm. So the Planetary Society, fairly small organization. Uh, this is not a government-funded program. The grants that we hand out to these individual and groups of uh, either uh, smaller professional astronomy organizations or amateurs, they would be barely pocket change in the world of NASA. But they, they really do seem to make a, a big difference to these folks. At least that's what we hear. I mean, is, is that what you get as well? Oh, yes. It's, it's actually it's a huge difference that it makes. Most of the people were coming in saying, hey, I need a spot of money to buy a camera or to improve my telescope. And once you get up to that level where they've got a, a, a professional-grade camera, which can be purchased for a few thousand dollars, this enables them to do really high-quality physical observations. A lot of the groups right now are doing light curves, which requires a great amount of skill, and it also requires a little technology. And once they break that technology barrier, uh, they're able to contribute in a great way. And very importantly, the near-Earth asteroids that are discovered there's generally a narrow window in which you can characterize them through a rotation period. We have these groups of people that observe the objects right after they're discovered, they get the light curve, and then they are responsible for providing the scientific community that information that is hard to get any other way. They get that information to you, and it gets corroborated, and then part of your job, right, is to share this with uh, everybody else in the community. 
Yes. So the, the Minor Planet Center is required to publish all of the astrometric positions of near-Earth asteroids that come into our office in less than 24 hours. Hmm. So we've got to have a really robust computer system set up. For the people that are doing the physical observations and providing the light curves, the Minor Planet Center actually hosts a database and distributes that information to people that ask for it. A lot of people will publish in the literature and then contact us and provide us with the light curve. So it's really a beautiful system. There are lots of amateur astronomers and professional astronomers, for that matter, in our audience, but plenty of people who are not. I just wonder if there is a public site, someplace where anybody could go to uh, be able to, to track some of this work as, as this data flows into the MPC. Yeah, the Minor Planet Center website uh, is, is available to the public. I will tell everyone that we're redoing that, and we're going to have a, um, a much different page coming live within the next few months. There is also uh, JPL's Near-Earth Object Program Office. Their website has all sorts of good information for the public. So there's, there's plenty out there, and it's, uh, it's really easy for the public to keep track of how many discoveries there are. And the MPC has a Facebook page and uh, a Twitter feed. Hmm. And whenever anything is discovered that's going to make a close approach to the Earth, we tweet that out and we put a little blurb on the Facebook page. I've seen that Twitter feed, and uh, we'll share a lot of this stuff. We'll put it up on the show page that people can get to from planetary.org slash radio. Thank you so much for joining us on Planetary Radio. Thanks so much for having me and invite me back anytime. You bet. Tim Sparr is an American astronomer who directs the Minor Planet Center, as you heard, the MPC, which is part of the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. It operates out of a grant provided by NASA. Well-spent money, I would say. He uh, doesn't just run this place. He also does this work. He's got lots of asteroids that he has discovered. He's uh, credited as a co-discoverer of one satellite of Jupiter and one of Saturn. He also has found two periodic comets. And uh, he's got one of these named after him, 2975 Spar. Was that a birthday present, Tim? Uh, no, it was close to a birthday present, but that was uh, named by Gareth Williams of the Minor Planet Center back when I was just a young chap working at the Catalina Sky Survey. <laughs> well, happy birthday regardless. Uh, anyway, that's Tim Spar, and we'll talk to him again someday here on Planetary Radio. In the meantime, we're going to talk to somebody else who loves to work in this area. It's our own planetary scientist, Bruce Betts, who will be dropping in in a few moments for this week's edition of What's Up. Bruce Betts is once again on the Skype line for this week's edition of What's Up. He's going to tell us about the night sky, and we're going to give away another one of those new, new, new Planetary Radio T-shirts. Have you seen the design yet? Finally. No, thanks to you. I still don't have it. I mean, they don't give it to me either, so you're not being singled out. <laughs> I, I want to get one to wear. I'd like to wear it on my vacation that starts uh, essentially right after we record this. It does look good. So, uh, <laughs> good. after all my complaining, uh, it, it does look good, and it does not feature a terrible picture of me, which is what I feared you were doing. <laughs> uh, no, no, they turned me down for that. Not that there are very many terrible pictures <laughs> no, of me. so few. What's up? Venus still looking fabulous, dominating low in the west shortly after sunset, looking like a super bright star. And on the uh, 10th and on the 11th, the crescent moon will be in the same part of the sky with Venus. And Saturn is up in the evening in the southwest, much uh, much dimmer, but still standing out as a bright-looking star that looks kind of yellowish. On 
into this week in space history. Hard to believe it's been five years since Messenger made its first flyby of Mercury. It then went into orbit uh, three years later, and it's been cranking out awesome Mercury data and mapping the whole planet since then. I continue to see uh, great reports uh, based on the data from that spacecraft. Still doing a great job. On to... My precious... The interstellar medium, also uh, called the ISM, is the space between the stars within a galaxy. And it's on average by mass about 1% dust with the rest being gas and plasma and other stuff. Wait a minute. Really? 1% dust? I thought it was like 99.999% nothing. By mass. Ah, okay. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. Yes, it is really, 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 really empty. It's a whole lot of nothing in general uh, by density and, and it, yeah, a whole lot of nothing. But by mass, if you, if you gather together with a really big vacuum cleaner all the stuff that is there, uh, then it's about 1% dust by mass. Speaking of vacuum cleaners, <laughs> what a great oh, segue. Oh, I know. Planet Vac, uh, you've got, I want to refer uh, folks to a couple of entries in your blog at planetary.org, July 1 and July 3, about that uh, that great project that the Planetary Society is helping out with uh, from Honeybee yeah. Robotics. Just just a quick mention there, something to take a look at, uh, vacuuming up not the interstellar medium, but uh, stuff, dirt on other planets and moons and things like that. Yep, trying to test out the process. It's underway. For more information, check out planetary.org. What a clever segue. Ah, yeah, that was good. It was almost like it was planned. (laughs) Almost, and it wasn't. Keep it up. So on to a trivia contest. We asked you, when did the first guitar go to space and on board what spacecraft? How did we do, Matt? Uh, This stumped a lot of people because the numbers went down. That and probably the 4th of July holiday. Uh, and I hope all of you had a wonderful one. It turns out that at least three guitars have gone into space. A couple much more recently, but the first one farther back than I would have expected. Is this uh, what you came up with? It's what Ed Lupin, Edward Lupin, down in San Diego, California, uh, came up with. Ed, by the way, has not won for about a year and a half, so congratulations, Ed. That new uh, T-shirt is yours. He said on August 10, 1978, the unmanned Soviet spacecraft Progress 3 delivered a guitar to the Salyut 6 space station because you had a couple of strumming uh, cosmonauts, apparently, on the Salyut. You did indeed, and I was surprised it was that far back on... Uh, I, I had Salyut 7, but other than that, um, you know, it's still some early space station acoustic guitar. Yeah, and then there have been more since then, as I, as I guess you mentioned. I was surprised how early and how many guitars have been up there. Yeah, next we should talk about when the first drum kit will go in space. Three guitars, a drum kit, we're ready. We got a band. <laughs> <laughs> we'll try to uh, start pushing that for priorities headed to the International Space Station. Right, good, that should be a top planetary society priority. <laughs> All right. What do you got for next time? <laughs> yeah, you go ahead and bring that up with <laughs> Kind of a different one this week, and I'm kind of curious. Besides Pluto, name at least one fictional dog. That would be from published books, comics, cartoons, TV, movies, that shares its name with a solar system object. And not something huh. on Earth, a solar system object off Earth. 
And uh, I, I've got at least one answer. I suspect there are a lot more. Find me an answer and uh, tell me what it's from, and uh, you will be entered into the random selection. And go to uh, planetary.org slash radio contest to enter. How interesting. This may be another tough one, but, but uh, the answers should be fascinating. You've got until the 15th, that would be Monday, July 15th at 2 p.m. Pacific time to get us this one and win yourself a brand new Planetary Radio t-shirt. All right, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about ducks. Quack. He's Duck Dodgers in the 23rd and a half. Uh, never mind. No, he's really Bruce Betts, the director of projects for the Planetary Society, at Random Space Fact. Did you know that? He's got a lot of followers, at Random Space Fact on Twitter. And he is um, also joining us every week right here for What's Up. A special show next week as I head off for a short vacation. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by a grant from the Kenneth T. and Eileen L. Norris Foundation and by the tanned members of the Planetary Society. Clear summer skies. Clear summer skies.